The reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 to 50. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. And Jesus answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the, ha- in the huge fish, in the belly of the huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now one greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now one greater than Solomon is here. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places, seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brother stood outside, wanting to speak to him. Someone told Jesus, your mother and brothers are standing outside, wanting to speak to you. And Jesus replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, Jesus said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is the gospel of Christ. take my life into my hands and move that out of the way. Um, I'm sorry for the sound uh, problems. Uh, I'm going to use this mic. I'm slightly going to do it nervously. You're supposed to be able to hide all these wires somehow. I don't know if you can see the wires. I haven't hidden them. That's because somebody told me that uh, although you are supposed to hide the wires, uh, they know people who these packs have burst into flames. And uh, given the trouble this morning, I'm not going to try and hide the wires. (laughs) Why don't we pray and ask the Lord for his help? Loving Heavenly Father, thank you that you speak to us, and so we plead with you now, graciously speak to us. We have a strange passage before us, uh, and things that are hard to understand, but we pray, dear Father, open our hearts and minds to hear these wonderful words of our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Is that for me? No. A few weeks ago, I told you that um, I mentioned that Charlie had got me some weight training sessions with uh, James Crowther. 
Well, a number of people have asked how they've been going, so I thought I'd give you an update. Uh, and I can say they've been going uh, really well. You can't see with these clothes on, but I've, um, I'm bulked up quite a lot, and uh, you have to trust me on that. But one of the things that James has been teaching me to do is um, to deadlift. And I, I said to James, how much can you deadlift? And I, I can't remember what he said, but it was a multiple of what I could do. Now, imagine that James said, well, I can deadlift 300 kilograms. Well, I'd say, wow, really? Show me. Prove it. And it'd be a reasonable thing to do, wouldn't it? I've no idea whether he can de deadlift 300 kilograms. Can you do that, James? No. Not. But imagine if on the wall of James's studio, there was a photo of the Canterbury deadlifting championships. And next to that, there was a certificate that said he'd, he'd deadlifted 300 kilograms. And on his coffee table, you know, in the way people kind of hide things on their coffee table in a kind of prominent place, was a photo on him, of him on the front of Weightlifters Weekly. Imagine that. And then I said, really? Prove it. Show me would take a slightly different tone, wouldn't it? One, I have no evidence. There is all the evidence on the wall, on the magazine. And in today's passage, the Pharisees ask for a sign. They ask for evidence from Jesus. And there's a good way to do that. Perhaps there's somebody who's investigating Jesus. You've begun to read the Bible. Uh, you've uh, perhaps started going to Christianity Explored. And there's many things you find puzzling. And you cry out and say, Lord, show yourself to me. Help me to understand and there's a humility in that, isn't there? But then there's another way to say the same thing. I know there probably is evidence in the Bible. I know there probably are Christian books written on this. I know that there is a course called Christian Explored. But frankly, if God wants to show himself to me, he'll show himself to me. If God wants me to believe, he'll give me a sign. Same kind of seeking. And on the surface, both people are seeking. But the underneath attitude is totally different, isn't it? And the reality is, some people seek a sign from God to avoid the evidence. Let me just say that again, because that's our first thing I want us to see this morning. Some people seek a sign from God to avoid the evidence. And that's exactly what we see in these verses, isn't it? Verse 38, some of the Pharisees and the teacher of the law said to Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. Now again, seeking evidence is not bad. But these guys had lots of evidence, didn't they? If you've been with us the last few weeks, you'll remember that uh, blind people received their sight, lame people walked, deaf people had their ears open, even the dead were raised. And as we hear that, we almost wonder, what more do these people want? There's so much evidence, and their request is a way of avoiding facing up to it. And so Jesus' response is not surprising, is it? He answered, verse 39, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, now, we need to understand that adultery here isn't so much uh, sexual adultery as spiritual adultery. And the prophets of the Old Testament repeatedly challenged Israel. They said that your hearts are not faithful to God. You love and worship things other than God. And we see the fruit of that really clearly here. They're not seeking a sign because they love God and want to know him better. They're spiritually adulterous. They're asking for a sign as a way of avoiding the many gracious signs Jesus has already given them. And Jesus says, none will be given to this generation, except, and isn't this a massive except? Except the sign of the prophet Jonah. You see, you've, you've already got stacks of evidence. I'm going to give you one more, and it's absolutely huge. It's the sign of Jonah. Well, what is the sign of Jonah? Well, verse 40, 
Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man, that's Jesus' way of talking about himself, will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Some of you know the story of Jonah well. You remember that he's a a prophet, uh, and he was told to go to the capital of the Assyrian Empire, Nineveh, and uh, to go there and preach that God's judgment was coming on that city. But Jonah doesn't want to do it. And so he tries to run away from God. He boards a ship in the opposite direction, as if you could run away from God like that. And God sends a storm. And the storm won't stop until the sailors throw Jonah into the sea. And you'd think it's the end, thrown into the sea in the middle of a storm. But God sends a fish that swallows Jonah. And for three days and three nights, he's in the belly of that fish. And during that time, he repents. He turns back to God And at the end of three days, God orders the fish to spit Jonah out. And you see the picture? It's a picture of life and death, isn't it? This Jonah is as good as dead in the belly of the fish, and then he spat out and has a fresh start. And Jesus says, that will be the sign I give you. I will be in the heart of the earth three days, and then I will rise from the dead. What is the sign of Jonah? It's the resurrection. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ that Jesus will be crucified. God's king will die. But three days later, he will rise because death cannot hold him. And Jesus says, this is the sign I will give you, that I rule even over death. And what a wonderful, gracious sign it is. It means we can go and investigate it. We can go and check it out. Jesus says to the Pharisees, in just a, a few months, you'll be able to go and see an empty tomb. I will have been dead and then I'll have risen. He says to us, you can see the eyewitness accounts. Get hold of this book and check it out. But because the Pharisees' hearts are adulterous, they don't do it. If they wanted to know, they they could have gone and looked. But if you read on to the end of the gospel, uh, we see that they go after Jesus has died to Pilate, and they say to him, give us some soldiers to guard the tomb so that nobody can steal the body and, and hoax the resurrection. Well, Jesus uh, Jesus rises from the dead, just as he said, and he walks straight past those stunned guards. And when they very sheepishly report it to the religious leaders, rather than asking what does this sign mean, rather than accepting this proof, they bribe the soldiers, tell them to spread a lie. It never happened. Because they're not interested in the evidence. They're not interested in the truth. They're spiritually adulterous, and they ask for a sign to avoid the evidence that's all around them. And sadly, so many people do the same thing today, don't they? Unless God gives me a sign, I won't believe. Maybe you've said something like that yourself. Maybe you've heard others say that. But friends, he's given us the sign of Jonah. He's given us the fact of the resurrection. It's an event documented and open to scrutiny. In the beginning, I drew a a very sharp distinction, didn't I, between those who who seek evidence uh, with a a heart that wants to to find the truth and those who who seek it almost to avoid it. But the reality is those two attitudes can blur together. And it's possible to start very genuinely seeking after God, maybe getting hold of a Bible and investigating these claims, going to Christianity Explored. But then we realize quite what it means to follow Jesus. And we realize, like these Pharisees, that to follow Jesus means admitting that the way we've lived up until now is not correct, that our views on Jesus are wrong, and that we need to repent. We need to change the way we live. And for some, that is too hard. It's too difficult to admit that they are wrong and that Jesus is Lord. And rather than say that, 
they say the evidence is not enough. And maybe they say, well, one day I'll make a decision when God makes things clearer. If God gives me a sign, then I'll believe. And it can sound so open-hearted, uh, open-minded, can't it? But actually, it's a way of being closed-minded. It's a way of avoiding the evidence, avoiding the call of Jesus. And Jesus warns there's great danger in that. Look at verse 41. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. The remarkable story of Jonah continues. Once he was spat from that fish, he was told again to go to Nineveh, and this time he obeyed. You would, wouldn't you? And uh, he goes to that great city, and he warns them God's judgment is coming. And the remarkable thing is they believed him. They repented. They confessed their sin from the least of them to the, the highest king. And God, in his graciousness, had mercy on them and did not destroy that city. And Jesus says, even that pagan city, that pagan city listened to a half-drowned, reluctant prophet. And something greater than Jonah is here. Not God's prophet, but God's son. And yet you haven't listened. You haven't believed God's word. You haven't accepted salvation. And so on judgment day, these Ninevites will rise up and condemn you because they had far less knowledge than you and yet believed. And you don't. But it's not just the Ninevites, is it? The queen of the south, that is the queen of Sheba, verse 42, she will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom and now one greater than Solomon is here. And you can read about that in 1 Kings. The queen of Sheba, she hears of the wisdom that God has given to King Solomon, king of Israel. And even though she's miles and miles and miles away, all the way down south on the Arabian Peninsula, she hears this rumor of this great wisdom. And she thinks, I've got to hear that. And so she sets off on this phenomenal expedition. And Jesus says, one greater than Solomon is here. And you don't listen. And you don't need to go on a journey. That's the great irony, is it? We don't need to cross rivers. We don't need to cross deserts. All we need to do is listen to Jesus. All we need to do is get hold of this book and open it up. And there is true wisdom. And though this book is in so many homes, so many hotels, it's just a few clicks away from most of us on our phones, so many people don't look. And so God's treasure of wisdom is ignored. We live in an age, don't we, that values technological know-how so much, but so often spurns wisdom. We know how to, to make a video call from Christchurch to Calgary in, in the click of a, a button, but we've lost the wisdom to know how to relate to those who live in the street next to us. We love the trinkets and baubles of this age that so fleetingly are here today and gone tomorrow, but we do not have the wisdom to seek the eternal life, the eternal joy that fills our hearts and souls now and for eternity. And Jesus says, because of that, this pagan queen will rise up and condemn this generation because they do not listen. And one greater than Solomon is here. And the question for each one of us this morning is, do we listen? Do we listen or do we have all kinds of ways of avoiding the evidence? Well, the second thing we see in this passage is you can't be a spiritual Switzerland. 
You can't be a spiritual Switzerland. You can't be spiritually neutral. You're either for Jesus or you're against him. I remember when I became a Christian, I, um, I went to visit my aunt, and my aunt's a lovely lady, uh, but she, she sort of took me aside uh, in, my, in, in her house, and she said, um, James, it's wonderful that you've got into all this Christian stuff, but when you, if you have kids, you won't, um, you won't tell them about Jesus, will you? you won't bring them up as Christians. I was totally, not even thought about it. Didn't know what to say. But that kind of thing is really common, isn't it? There's a kind of neutrality. I can, I can bring my kids up in a neutral way. And Jesus says you can't be a spiritual Switzerland. Either we bring up our kids in the fear and knowledge of the Lord, or the world disciples our kids to hate Jesus. You can't be a spiritual Switzerland. You can't sit on the fence. And it's not just our kids, it's all of us. Either we worship Jesus or we worship something else. And if we'll not come to Jesus, he says it will be worse for us both in this life and at judgment. And so Jesus tells this little story to illustrate the point. Now, to our ears, it's frankly bizarre, isn't it? It's a story about demon possession. Now, the Bible makes it clear that there are people who are under the influence of evil spirits. And we've seen Jesus casting out uh, evil spirits. We've seen others casting them out. And today in the West, certainly, this is a rare thing, not an unheard of thing, but a rare thing. But we mustn't miss the wood for the trees here. Jesus doesn't say this to give us kind of how-to on how to get rid of spirits. No, the point is at the end of verse 45. He says this story to make a comment on his generation and through them to us. And the point is this, you can't be a spiritual Switzerland. You can't be spiritually neutral. Either you're for Jesus or you're against him. Well, in verse 43, we see this evil spirit comes out or, or, or literally is cast out of this poor man, and he goes seeking somewhere else to live. And he can't find somewhere to live, so he goes back to his original, the person where he lived. And he finds it unoccupied. But not just unoccupied, it's been swept clean and put in order. He's restored. Couldn't help thinking of that man who Jesus cast many demons out of. Do you remember the one who, the demons went into the pigs? Some people nodding. And that man lived in a graveyard, and he spent his days cutting himself. And these spirits made him like a beast, basically. And Jesus came and cast them out, and he was restored in his right mind. His home was wonderfully cleaned. Everything was put in order. Well, that man left praising God, left praising Jesus. But in Jesus' story, there's a danger of trying to be spiritually neutral. There's a danger of being unoccupied because that spirit goes and finds other spirits, and they take possession again. And Jesus says the final state is worse than the first, and so will it be for this generation, he warns. Now, Jesus is not saying all of his generation are possessed by evil spirits, but they are beginning to be interested in Jesus, aren't they? They see the signs of the kingdom of heaven, and they begin to turn to him. They begin to leave behind their evil. But if it stops there, Jesus says there'll be a kind of spiritual vacuum. And nature abhors a vacuum. If we don't fill that vacuum with something, the danger is it will be filled with more evil. You can't just be interested in Jesus. You need to follow him. You need to fill that vacuum with obedience to Jesus. You need to fill it with the Holy Spirit as we believe in Jesus and submit to him as Lord and are filled with God's presence. And the danger is that with the emptiness, it will be replaced with evil. And the final condition will be worse than the first. 
And friends, you see the point? It's not enough just to come to church. It's not enough just to admire Jesus. We must be wholehearted disciples of Jesus. Or the danger is the first condition will be worse than the first. And that's true, I think, for individuals and for society. I can think of people who've begun to investigate Jesus. And it looked like they're close to putting their trust in him and becoming a Christian, but they rejected him for some reason or other. And then they're more aggressively hostile. And their condition is worse than before. They push Jesus away more violently. And on judgment day, they will have no excuse. They will not be able to say, I didn't know. They knew and they rejected. And what's true on an individual level is true on a societal level. The more and more our society, our generation, throws off the legacy of Christianity, the more and more problems arise, don't they? I wonder if anyone's read Tom Holland's book, Dominion. Has anyone read that book? It's a great book. Uh, it's called Dominion, The Making of the Western Mind. And Tom Holland's not a Christian, but he traces how the, the Western mind has been shaped from kind of pre, pre-Christian times right through to now. And he shows what happens when... when the West embraced Christianity and then began to throw it off at the Enlightenment. And let me give you one example. Uh, there are many terrifying examples in the book. Let me give you one. Many would say that as uh, our society has thrown off Christian inhibition about sexual morals, we've liberated ourselves. We enjoy a degree of sexual freedom and, and freedom in matters of sexuality unknown. But what Tom Holland makes the point is that freedom leads to men like Harvey Weinstein. Powerful men who use their power with the freedom to obtain their sexual wants. And Tom Holland makes the point that that is exactly what happened in pre-Christian times. There was phenomenal sexual freedom in the Roman Empire for powerful men. Now someone will point back and say, but hang on a minute, during the history of the church, they've all, all, all been kind of abuses. Christianity hasn't wiped this out. And that's true, and and tragically, many Christian leaders fall in this day. But when that happens, it's a failure to be sufficiently Christian. It's a failure to follow Jesus sufficiently closely. But if your framework is one of a kind of social Darwinianism, a a survival of the fittest, a dog-eat-dog society, why are we surprised when the strong dog eats the weak? And when that happens, it's not a failure of the system or the philosophy. In fact, it's exactly what the system and philosophy would predict would happen. And as our society pushes away Christianity, pushes away Jesus, and fills it with the void of all kinds of teaching, the final condition is worse than the first. I tremble to think what will be like in 50 years, 100 years. What will it be like for our children, our grandchildren, as we see the legacy of the abortion boil that was passed through in lockdown? What will be the legacy of this euthanasia act if it comes into force? Where slowly a right to die becomes a duty to die. Where the option to terminate those with disabilities becomes an expectation to do so. And individually and as a society, either we move towards Jesus or we move away from him. We cannot be a spiritual Switzerland. And if we move away from Jesus, the final condition is worse than the first. It's a very sobering warning. But do you see the implied blessing here? 
that as the gospel restores our generation, as it restores individuals in our generation, as they return to Jesus and find fresh life, as their houses are put in order, so blessing follows. And that's, friends, why we must pray for our generation. That's why we must seek to be wholehearted followers of Jesus. Why we must seek to hold out the message, the life-changing message of Jesus. Because that is the true way to blessing for ourselves and for our generation. Well, the final thing I want us to see is the amazing privilege that Jesus offers those who come to him. And friends, if we get hold of this, it's mind-blowing. The privilege Jesus offered us, offers us finally. Look at verse 46. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mothers and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. And just picture that scene. Jesus is in a house or in a barn and he's teaching and his family at the door and someone says, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. Just imagine if that happened this morning. Who's on Size People's Studio this morning? Robin Thew. Imagine if Robin Thew said, uh, James, James, stop the service. Your, your mother and brothers are outside. They want to talk to you. What would I do? I'd probably say, Robin, why have you interrupted the service? But given you've interrupted the service, bring them in. Bring them down the front. And in fact, I'll give them a hug and welcome them. That's what we might expect Jesus to do, but he doesn't, does he? He says, verse 48, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he points to his disciples. Here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And friends, think how shocking that would be to say today, my mother watching on the live stream would be livid with me if I left her at the door. But how much more so in a traditional society? And we've got to see he's not downplaying the relationship to his earthly mother. He's not being rude to his brothers. He's highlighting and underlining the tremendous privilege we enjoy as his disciples. Who is my true family? You are my true family, Jesus says, as he looks at us this morning. The one who is my disciple. And who is my disciple? The one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Sometimes in, in Matthew's gospel, disciple means the 12 apostles. But look at verse 50. Jesus talks about brothers and mother and sisters. It's not just the 12. Anyone who comes to me, whoever does the will of my Father, that is to say, who believes in me, who will accept me as their king, who will turn from their sin and ask me to deal with it at the cross, that my precious blood might wipe it away, and seek to follow me, then you are part of my family. Friends, see how wonderful this is? And think of the context of this chapter. So many people have rejected Jesus, snubbed Jesus, hated Jesus, ignored Jesus, gone out and plotted to kill Jesus, asked for a sign to avoid the clear things Jesus has been saying. But to those who listen, those who believe, who humbly follow, I will welcome you into my family. You will be part of my intimate inner circle. So much so that when my real mother knocks on the door, I leave her waiting to keep talking to you. If you're someone who feels you're not part of things, feels that you're not really much, you're always left out. If you follow Jesus, you are part of his family. He loves you more than you can imagine.
Now, that doesn't mean life will always be rosy, but it means when life goes wrong, you are a child of God. The king of the universe is your brother. The maker of the universe is your father. This past month or so, I've been trying to pray to myself in the morning, Heavenly Father, thank you that the maker of the universe is my father. Thank you that I have the privilege of being your son. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are my brother, that I have the privilege of serving you. And thank you that I am just a son, just a servant, that the cares of the world do not fall on me. And it's so liberating. Holy Spirit, thank you that you indwell me and help me to live in a way that is for my good and for your glory. Maybe some of us need to do something like that to remember this wonderful truth, the privilege of coming to Jesus. Well, friends, there's much more we can say. In passing, let me just draw one more little thing out, and that is to notice the corporate aspect of this. Christianity is not just about me and God. It's about us together being the family of God. And in this time, as things have been pushed online, as, as COVID has pushed up online, it's very easy to think that it's, it's me and God as I sit in front of my computer screen, or it's my family, my bubble and God as we sit together in our lounge room before the screen. But no, it's us, God's family, all of us, and God. In two weeks' time, we've got that dinners for eight, and I really hope that we'll support that. That's more than just having a nice meal. It's remembering who we are. It's committing to each other and saying, we together are God's family. Here are my brother and mothers and sisters. And if you've never done it before, can I urge you, sign up. You don't have to serve gourmet food. You can serve cup noodles. But be the people of God because we together are Jesus' family. And friends, as we finish, do you see this wonderful privilege? Do you delight in this wonderful privilege? And if not, go home and make your soul happy in this privilege. And if you're not someone who knows this, who doesn't know this joy, will you seek Jesus? Stop ignoring the evidence, however politely you do it. Stop putting it off and look, really look. Because to ignore Jesus is disaster, but for those who will seek him, he will let himself be found and will welcome you in and bless you beyond your wildest dreams. Let's pray to him now. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the privilege that we have of being called your brothers and sisters. May we never take that lightly. May we remember what joy that means. The king of the universe is our brother. The creator of the universe is our father. And whatever our situations today, may that be joy to us. May that keep us going this week. And may we with joy in our hearts seek to make those truths known to this world. That this generation might move towards you. And enjoy and delight in this blessing too. For Jesus' sake we ask it. Amen.